Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to 1956, episode 1.13. Last time we saw how the Hungarian Revolt finally burst forth from the ashes of discontent, anger, and a sense of hope which was sweeping across the block in the aftermath of the secret speech. As badly as the Kremlin leader may have wished he could put the de-Stalinization speech back in the box, ever since that moment in late February, it was clear nothing would ever be the same again. Regime changes in Poland had come to pass amidst tense scenes, but it was in Hungary above all that affairs had taken such an incendiary turn. If the revolt in Budapest had apparently been foreseen by nobody important enough to stop it, then the outcome of a Soviet agreement to a ceasefire had been impossible to predict. Yet the Soviets had, against all odds and the grim expectations of the desperate Hungarians who rose against them, signed just such an agreement on Sunday, the 28th of October, five days after the Hungarians had first begun their armed action against their stunned Soviet masters. The shock to the Soviet system, it seemed, was the reason for the hasty peace terms, just as the recovery from and need to contain this shock justified the decision to break the armistice and reinvade Hungary once more with overwhelming force. With portions of the bloc growing restless and Soviet prestige on the line, the decision was made in Moscow to crush Budapest and in the process extinguish for good any impressions which the West may have had regarding the soft power aspects of Soviet communism. The events of Budapest make for depressing but also inspiring reading as the people in Hungary saw the writing on the wall and prepared now for the end to come which had been unexpectedly delayed a few days before. Caught up in this story are the persons of Imre Naj, his followers and those men and women who decided for various reasons to stab him in the back. Hungary would not become another Poland, with its own road to socialism, or another Austria, neutral and detached from either bloc. Instead, Hungary would be crushed. There was, Nikita Khrushchev believed, no other way. After vacillating for so long over the preceding months and giving contradictory, unclear signals about the nature of this new course of Soviet society and how far the latest thaw would melt the old ways, Khrushchev acted here against the final, most brutal expression of the secret speech. As such, this episode here ties up our narrative in several ways, but we're far from finished yet. Let's get on with it here, though, 
as I take you regretfully to late October 1956. It had been a liberating, euphoric, almost dreamlike set of days since the Soviets had signed the armistice. Like an act of divine intervention, when Soviet tank columns attempted to destroy one too many Hungarian insurgent positions, the Soviets received a bloody nose, and the Hungarian ruffians emerged with a pyrrhic victory in spite of the circumstances. Under the urgent pleas of Imre Naj, and under the influence of calmer heads for the moment in Moscow, the decision was made to pull out of Budapest and leave, so it seemed, Hungary for the Hungarians. It was the kind of unexpected victory that trumped all others, and it remains one of the most curious, inherently fascinating episodes of the Cold War. Here were the Soviets conceding to a state of affairs which they could not claim victory from. If not victory, then was this a Soviet defeat? And if so, how far should or could the rebels press this defeat against Moscow? How far could they push to achieve not just a Polish road to socialism, but a Hungarian road to independence? These questions swirled around the dazzled mind of many a Hungarian around this time, but the historian Victor Sebastian provides us with some clarity regarding the question of why. Why did the Soviet Union, a world superpower, sign on the dotted line of peace? Sebastian wrote, There were good reasons for the Russian failure to crush the revolution. The main one was that they did not have a clear aim beyond policing a city of more than one and a half million inhabitants, and almost every one of them wanted to see the Soviets leave. The troops had been through an ordeal. By now around 500 had been killed. They were exhausted and hungry and needed a rest. The Hungarians, on this Sunday, were taking part in moving funerals throughout the day, which swelled the emotion of the uprising, giving the rebels renewed impetus. The practical realities of the Soviet Union had demonstrated that in many respects, Moscow's sprawling empire, based upon the twin pillars of fear and intimidation, had the grave potential to sink once either one of these pillars began to crumble. The people of Hungary didn't seem to fear the Soviet army anymore, certainly not on the kind of level they had once feared their own avu or secret police during Rakoshi's murderous purges. In the morning and afternoon of Wednesday the 31st of October, a week since the first full day of armed resistance had begun, reports were coming in from across the block that the Hungarian virus was attacking new hosts. In Poland, where Vladislav Gomułka's regime was recently established, the presence of 300,000 demonstrators in solidarity with Budapest marched in Warsaw. Gomułka assured Moscow he was merely letting events take their course, as he expected the demonstrators to run out of steam within a few weeks. In Czechoslovakia, the Czech government was admitting that events in Hungary were having a deleterious psychological effect and that they were creating a hostile anti-socialist mood and that the citizens of the multi-ethnic Czechoslav state were displaying a growing hostility and mistrust of the Soviet Union. In Romania, a new student organisation had been established with remarkably similar aims to that established in Budapest. Many members of the Communist Party there had already joined, and rumour had it that students were planning marches in Bucharest in an effort to further ape the Budapest example. Even in Georgia, once so volatile after the riots against de-Stalinisation and the restriction of national privileges before being crushed in March, this region was becoming troublesome once more. 
If the fears regarding the instability of the Soviet bloc were disconcerting, then Khrushchev's fears about the knock-on effects for the Soviet Union proper were regarded as the most serious danger of all. Khrushchev was being told by the KGB that a loosely formed intellectual movement, suppressed in the past, was becoming more active. There was reason to fear the establishment of a Soviet equivalent of a Potofi circle, which could provide such intellectuals in the Soviet Union proper, mostly in the Russian heartland, with a public platform to further discredit the overall Soviet Union. While Khrushchev was keen to reform and fix the glaring flaws of the Soviet system, 1956 had demonstrated to him all too clearly that the Soviet Union, and Stalin's ghost, could not be so easily or painlessly divorced from what they had then. In the Moscow State University, student protests were even becoming a problem. Imagine the scene if a Budapest-type situation erupted in Moscow. How could Khrushchev allow such a state of affairs to happen? He would undoubtedly be held up as the scapegoat, and his liberal agenda would almost certainly be blamed as the root cause. It was thus essential for the sake of Soviet power as much as for his own regime that Khrushchev intervened forcibly in Hungary. By doing so, he would signal that the Soviet bloc depended upon the application of force to endure, but this was surely better than not enduring at all. In the previous day, the commander-in-chief of all Warsaw Pact forces had been called to Moscow, an act which had made everyone nervous to begin with, but Khrushchev wanted to be sure he possessed as many options as possible. Even the night before, the first secretary hadn't approved of another invasion, and he'd even chatted with Lu Xiaoqi in relation to this strategy. Both Lu and Mao Zedong approved of unique roads to socialism for the satellite states, since this would validate the unique Chinese journey and demonstrate that there was no right way to become a communist state. Now Khrushchev and the military chief talked, and it was promised that it would take no more than three days to put this revolution down. Now, in these tense moments, Khrushchev believed it necessary to reach out to the Chinese delegation again and inform them of the change in policy before they left for Beijing. Khrushchev and his circle sped to the airport in their limousines, where the Chinese delegation were waiting to board. It must have been quite the scene, as Khrushchev told Liu Xiaoqi face-to-face that the decision had been made to invade Hungary again. Liu approved, and revealed that Mao had come to the same conclusion in the last 24 hours, in light of the contaminating effects of Budapest. It seemed that word of Soviet troubles was spreading fast. Khrushchev then moved to ensure that the rest of the bloc would be approving of this grave step, which, of course it was. That same day on Wednesday the 31st of October, the American legation in Budapest had informed Washington that no Soviet forces remained within the city's suburbs, and that Soviet forces were moving out of the country towards the east. In a dramatic overnight change, the report said, it became virtually certain in Budapest this morning that this Hungarian revolution is a fact of history. One individual who knew that this was not at all the case was Anastas Mikoyan, that wily Armenian minister who had spent the last few days in Budapest. Originally, Mikoyan had been one of the firmest advocates of a Polish-like solution for Hungary, believing it to be the best means by which the revolution could be contained. In the last 24 hours, though, he, like his supporters in Moscow, were coming round to the fact that Budapest would have to be forcibly quarantined. Mikoyan had reached such an about-face, not necessarily because of the troubling challenges Hungary 
had provided to Moscow in its far-flung empire. Instead, Mikoyan had focused on the shocking events of the previous day on the 30th of October, where a terrible massacre had occurred at Republic Square in Budapest. On that day, after learning of the brutal murder of 23 civilians and some AVO recruits in the old building, Mikoyan had messaged Moscow to the effect that The political situation in the country and in Budapest is getting worse. There is a feeling of helplessness. Hooligan elements have become more insolent, seizing party committees, killing communists. The factories are stalled. The people are sitting at home. Hooligan students and other resistance elements have changed their tactics and are displaying greater activity. Now they are hardly shooting at all, but instead are seizing institutions. The Hungarian army has adopted a wait-and-see position. Our military advisers say that relations between Hungarian officers and generals and Soviet officers have deteriorated in the past few days. Mikoyan was coming round to the reality that the logical conclusion of the Budapest revolt was to expel all Soviet elements, and that the only thing which had so far prevented this was the cooperation of the new Hungarian government with Moscow, which could not last in the long term. The morning after he sent this telegram, Mikoyan had assured the Hungarian government that Soviet troops and officials were leaving for good. Perhaps in the morning, he had believed it. Yet, by the afternoon, informed of Khrushchev's decision to invade, Mikoyan had to put on his deceptive mask as he had done so many times before. Having felt so horrified by the events of Republic Square, Mikoyan may have believed that Khrushchev was justified in intervening to protect Soviet institutions and citizens. Once he was given the confidential rundown of the negative impact of Budapest on the rest of the bloc, though, Mikoyan understood still more completely why it was necessary to put the Hungarians down. Still, he smiled his sickly smile, armed with knowledge of an additional event, which was taking place many thousands of miles away from Budapest. The British and French, Khrushchev had told Mikoyan, were bombing Egypt. The unfolding Suez crisis emerged seemingly out of nowhere for the new Hungarian government, yet there was no confusion over what it meant for them. For so many days, Budapest had been on the front page of newspapers across the world, and grainy, grey images of Hungarian insurgents had evoked awe and praise from several Western observers. Now, though, with an Anglo-French military operation taking place in Egypt, Budapest was old news, especially now that the fighting had died down in Hungary, and their war was no longer a hot one. Had the cynic within him sufficiently stirred, Imre Naj may have suspected that this state of affairs was of immense benefit to the Soviets. He did not believe that Suez factored too much into the Soviet strategic planning, and in this he was correct. Suez was one of those happy coincidences, which for Naj's government was to prove anything but happy. Imre Naj was caught in something of a crisis. While he had been seen by many as the face of the protest march, and while to some his courage epitomised this new phase in Hungarian government, he had not come off well from the past week of violence. The increasingly radical aims of the insurgents, and Naj's own unwillingness to abandon the party line, made him an easy target for those in Hungary that wished to distance themselves altogether from socialism, but also for Western media organs. Radio Free Europe heaped criticism upon Naj, portraying all communists as shades of the same terrible colour. In addition, Hungarian people were urged to continue the struggle against the latent communist influence, 
with the tagline that no communist is a good communist. Naj had to respond to these attacks, just as he had to respond to the rumour that he had been the one to invite the Soviet troops in in the first place. As we saw last time, Naj hadn't been in a position to make such a call, since Erno Garrow approved the intervention verbally and in written form before even talking with Naj. When Garrow attempted to get Naj to sign off on this already approved declaration asking for Soviet military assistance, Naj had refused, but he had approved of the implementation of martial law, out of the belief Naj would forever claim that this was the best way to restore order. It was vital for the sake of Hungarian independence and security that both the citizens of Hungary and the Western states understood that Naj was not another communist puppet. A communist he may have been, but Naj was determined to emphasise that the time of Hungarian deference to Moscow was effectively over. This was quite a change for a man who had once believed so fervently in the commonality and necessity of communism as a world force, which included Hungarian and Soviet elements working in tandem. Naj seemed to grasp in late October that unless he recast himself as the rebellious communist rather than as the sycophantic Soviet socialist, neither his people nor the West would ever accept him as a leading figure. This friction could well compel the Soviets to intervene again, destroying the opportunity Hungary had to make its way organically to socialism. But did anyone in Hungary want to make their way to socialism anymore? Before all the violence, Naj's limited aims had seemed enough, and the Polish example seemed like a perfect fit for Hungary's young communists. Now though, after fighting against the Communist Party, after battling the Soviet Union for over a week, and after murdering several members of the secret police which that system had spawned, many Hungarians had had enough of the whole rotten idea. At 2.30pm on the 31st of October, Naj addressed the rumours which had been swirling around his appointment since the revolution had begun. As Naj spoke, he couldn't have known that in Moscow, Khrushchev was plotting to snuff this experiment in Hungarian communism out once and for all. Naj, oblivious to what would occur in the next few days, said, I address you again, Hungarian brethren, with warm and affectionate feelings. We are living in the first days of our sovereignty and independence. We have expelled from our country the Rakoshi and Garo gang. They will answer for their crimes. They tried to besmirch me by spreading the lie that I called in Soviet troops. This lie is infamous. Imre Naj, the champion of Hungarian sovereignty, Hungarian freedom and Hungarian independence, did not call in these troops. Indeed, on the contrary, it was he who fought for their withdrawal. My dear friends, today we have started negotiations for the withdrawal of the Soviet troops from our country and the abrogation of the obligations imposed on us by the Warsaw Treaty. I ask only of you to be a little bit patient. You can place that much confidence in me. Stand by us. Support us in our patriotic efforts. Naj was having a hard time of it. He was grilled consistently over what would be done about these AVO employees who were in prison. He was asked by rebel leaders across Budapest and across Hungary who believed they deserved a stake in leading the new regime. He was challenged by liberated officials of once banned parties. He was challenged for being too soft on communism, too much of a communist himself, not enough of a Hungarian. On the 31st of October, the National Guard had been established, with its task being to round up the weapons still remaining on the streets and to begin repairing this gutted city. Insurgents, old communists, members of once illegal political parties and students were among those that made up its numbers 
and many words were used in support of genuinely free, democratic elections to be held in the near future. Nagy wasn't quite sure how to respond to these changes, but he did make great efforts to change his political outlook and the aims he held for his country. The mention of the Warsaw Treaty or Warsaw Pact in his radio address forms a very important part of the story of the Hungarian Revolution, and it ties into the theme we visited before, guys, of Soviet weakness in the face of its satellites' combined demands. Someone else who felt a bit out of sorts was Anastas Mikoyan, who returned in the evening of the 31st of October to Moscow to plead his case. While he had initially digested the news of Khrushchev's approval for a second intervention, Mikoyan had had time to think during his travels home, and he couldn't ignore his good feeling that to invade would be disastrous for the Soviet image and for the future of Russo-Hungarian relations. Mikoyan became increasingly angry as his efforts to moderate Khrushchev's policy fell on deaf ears. Khrushchev hadn't slept properly in nearly three days by the time he received Mikoyan's call, and with important business due on the 1st of November, he was less than pleased to receive Mikoyan's complaints. Mikoyan's point was that he had been sent to Hungary for a reason, and that he had the expertise and first-hand experience to be able to advise Soviet policy, but this was ignored. The decision has been taken and the timetable has been established, Khrushchev barked angrily, adding that the plans for taking back Hungary would be ruined if Mikoyan got his way and another meeting on the Hungarian issue was called. I personally think we made the right decision and you are wrong, Khrushchev concluded, before slamming down the phone receiver. Try as he might, the Soviet first secretary couldn't get any rest that night perhaps in light of what his minions were about to do to the Hungarian people, that tiny, very tiny voice of conscience in the back of his mind was beginning to pipe up. If it was, then it was too little too late. Anastas Mikoyan would sulk in vain, Khrushchev would crush the Hungarians as he said he would, and Imre Nagy, though he couldn't know it yet, already had his fate sealed, even while he socialised with optimistic, jovial crowds of citizens on Parliament Square in the evening of the 31st of October. To those assembled in Parliament Square for an impromptu celebration, it seemed as though a national miracle had taken place. Folk music played and people wrapped up in their winter clothes to toast victory as fires lit up the grounds. Within 24 hours, the scene in Parliament Square would be very different, but on Halloween night, it seemed as though anything was possible. Life is full of what-ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry, and some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs, no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Naj was woken early before dawn in the morning of the 1st of November. Judging by his aide's face, Imre Naj knew that the worst had indeed occurred. Reports had been received of a column of 850 tanks crossing Hungary's second largest river, while thousands of soldiers marched behind. What were these men marching towards, if not to reconquer their unruly vassal? With this evidence, Naj began to worry, yet he kept feeling reassured by the facts of the day. He had a deal with the Soviets. He had signed a treaty while Mikoyan had looked him in the eyes and told him that the Soviets were leaving the country. Moscow surely wouldn't do it. It couldn't be so treacherous, certainly not while the world was watching. Pal Meliter, the immensely tall lieutenant who had been made Minister of Defence of this new Hungarian government, confirmed the reports in a conversation he had had with a downcast Naj. Meliter said, The tanks are the Soviets' muscle to extract retaliation for their setback. Their hardliners do not care about public opinion in the rest of the world. They intend to use Hungary as a lesson for the other satellite states. I assure you that the danger has not diminished. Quite to the contrary, it is getting worse. Palmeliter had, in fact, given a remarkably accurate synopsis of Soviet fears and intentions. Moscow had moved against Naj not because of rumblings of leaving the Warsaw Pact, rumblings which Naj was later to qualify by announcing the full Hungarian withdrawal from these arrangements, as we'll see. It is commonly argued that Hungary went too far, where Poland under Gomułka had known the importance of still towing the Soviet line. Naj, it is said, pulled Hungary out of the Warsaw Pact and announced the end of the one-party Soviet system of government, which Moscow couldn't approve of. Yet, while it is true that Budapest went further than Moscow, it is not true that Naj's policy decisions made any difference on Soviet thinking. The policymakers in Moscow would have acted as they did regardless. Once the armistice had been signed on the 30th of October, some may have believed that the fallout would be contained by peaceful means. Yet, it became clear that such ripples, which had been born of violence, could only be halted and calmed through more violence. Ironically then, it was the initial success of the Hungarians in meeting the Soviet challenge which sealed the fate of its new regime. Khrushchev ordered the reinvasion of Hungary because the Red Army had suffered a surprising defeat, and this defeat had spurred elements of discontent on in the other satellite states. Khrushchev had acted because he feared the outcome of a free Hungarian government not living in fear of an army they had already managed to frustrate. Khrushchev acted because he believed that if he didn't, other states would follow the Hungarian example, securing the knowledge that even the smallest beginnings had the potential to frustrate the greatest superpowers. Hungary had made Russia look weak, and much like the case had been for centuries when so much was at stake in this stock exchange of public opinion, Khrushchev felt compelled to act before a great crash wiped out everything that had been built. 
Along with the military movement westward into Hungary, Khrushchev was also moving westward, but the destination was Brest in Poland, near the Russo-Polish border. The decision to make for one of Russia's satellites, not least one which had followed a similar path to Hungary without ending up as Budapest did, had the effect of sending a clear message. Unfortunately for Khrushchev though, his apartment was in the same Kremlin complex as Mikoyan's, and the troubled Armenian ambushed him at 7am on the morning of the 1st of November, just as Khrushchev was walking down the graveled path to his limousine. Do you think it's any easier for me? Khrushchev challenged. We have to act, we have no other choice. To which Mikoyan replied, If blood is shed, I don't know what I'll do with myself. Khrushchev seemed to think that his long-serving peer was hinting at suicide. In fact, Mikoyan was merely hinting at a very public resignation, but Khrushchev's response to this is worth noting. He said, That would be the height of stupidity, Anastash. I believe you are a rational man. Think it over. Take all the factors into account, and you'll see we made the right decision. Even if there's bloodshed now, it will spare us bloodshed later. Think again, and you will see the necessity of our decision. As he got into his limousine and moved off, Khrushchev would have been informed of Naj's increasingly desperate calls to Moscow. On Khrushchev's instructions, all of the old telephone lines had been left empty. Naj had nobody to talk to, and he began to assume the worst, that somehow treachery was to be the game of the nation which he had been once proud to call home. The morning of the 1st of November reads more like a high-drama novel than as an event in history, Naj, fearing the worst but hoping for the best, talked with his aides, including Palma Leader, the Minister for Defence, whom he asked to call a halt to the strikes still ongoing, in a bid to demonstrate to the Russians that Budapest was a peaceful city and that Hungary would be a friendly satellite. Maliter agreed to give peace a chance, even while he knew that Soviet forces were converging on Budapest. Imre Naj believed that the best way to keep a handle on the situation was to refrain from informing the people of the approaching armies. If the people did not know for sure, then the kind of terrible revolutionary violence which had occurred before would not erupt, and Budapest would not be in need of any kind of Russian army to put the unstable regime down. His colleagues agreed to go along with the plan, but Naj was keen to emphasise that he possessed one more ace up his sleeve, or so he thought. If Soviet forces were invading, then as a final act, Naj declared he would remove Hungary from the Warsaw Pact and absolve his government of its military commitments with Moscow. That Naj was putting forward this final straw-type plan at this 11th hour, long after his regime's fate had been sealed, further undermines that oft-parroted view that Naj had somehow brought the invasion upon himself through his policies. All Naj could do was to believe the weak excuses given by Yuri Andropov, the Soviet ambassador to Hungary, who lied his head off in his efforts to keep Naj quiet. Why were Soviet forces moving towards Hungary? The troop movements are routine and not to the prejudice of Hungary, Andropov insisted. To the contrary, we are doing it to avoid incidents in the pull-out of our military units. This is our obligation, to ensure the orderly withdrawal of the forces. What about the tanks, though? Naj asked. And what about the encircling and takeover of Hungary's key airport by Soviet forces? Andropov, instructed to play for time, replied that they were there... To ensure the safe evacuation of the sick and wounded, you will surely agree, Mr. Prime Minister, that things are not very peaceful in your country right now. 
There it was. Not only had Andropov made a veiled reference to the instability of Hungary, which would later be used as an excuse by Soviet state media, but Andropov had addressed Naj as Mr. rather than Comrade, as was customary. It was, on the surface, a subtle change, but in the heady atmosphere it spoke volumes about the Soviet intentions. If Naj was no longer a comrade, was he still safe? His subordinate had told him earlier of a plane which could take him out of the country, to which Naj had replied, in an answer which was as pathetic as it was brave, Where would I go? Naj was painfully aware that, in the apparent calmness created by his instructions to refrain from mentioning the Soviet advance, foreign media agents had left Budapest in droves, travelling to the new hotspot, Suez. This isn't news anymore, as one journalist of the Daily Express put it. His colleagues seemed to agree. Budapest was boring in its victory. Perhaps if they had known what was on the way, they wouldn't have been so quick to leave but Khrushchev had made it clear that he cared little for foreign journalists either way. By 11am on the 1st of November, he was with Vladislav Gomolka, whom Khrushchev still felt uneasy about considering their tense previous meeting. Gomolka signalled his willingness to cooperate with Moscow and offered Warsaw as a place for Russo-Hungarian talks to be hosted, but Khrushchev ignored him. Gomolka's strong disapproval of the Soviet reinvasion of Hungary was noted but Gomolka avoided making too much of a fuss. We will talk in the next episode about the Polish and Hungarian cases and what made each so different, so put a pin in the why did the Soviets invade debate for the moment as we continue the actual story of early November. Naj's decision to remove Hungary from the Warsaw Pact was intended to produce several complications, the major one being that, since Hungary was no longer a member of that pact, Moscow wouldn't be justified in invading its lands. Instead of a case of one pact member helping out the other, the Soviet invasion would be just that, an invasion with all the implications for international condemnation that these entailed. Unfortunately, it seems that not only did Naj overestimate the impact of this declaration in Soviet minds, he also overestimated the care and concern which foreign powers felt for Hungary. Withdrawing from the pact wouldn't make Hungary any more important or interesting for Western audiences, who were already distracted and strategically invested in the Suez Crisis. At 5pm, Naj called a cabinet meeting, and present was Yuri Andropov, the Soviet ambassador. At this meeting, Naj translated the memo which Andropov had finally given to him regarding Soviet intentions. The memo was the usual fabrication containing empty reassurances. The minutes of the meeting note that Andropov could not satisfactorily answer the questions of the national government regarding the entering of further Soviet troops at the eastern border. At this, Naj stood up and went around the room, asking each member of cabinet whether they felt comfortable with making the official announcement to leave the Warsaw Pact. All present did, with some reluctance displayed by one official, Janusz Kadar, whose reluctance was noted by Andropov. Naj feared that Andropov had been lying both to limit the resistance which the Hungarians could mount and to present an opportunity for Hungarian Quisling to jump into the vacancy left by Naj. Janusz Kadar, the hesitating official, seemed to fit this latter category perfectly. Naj didn't know it yet, but he was sitting in the room with a Judas. Conspiracy was the word of the day on the 1st of November, as Andropov's net 
caught both Janusz Kadar and two of his peers shadily agreeing to control the post-Naj regime together, the two conspirators tried to be discreet and piled into Andropov's Mercedes with curtains in the back, as Andropov's driver drove them to a secluded wooded area. As if acting in a manner familiar to a Bond villain, the two Hungarians schemed with Andropov for around an hour between 8pm and 9pm on the 1st of November. But this was not a scene populated by a straightforward villain. Kadar had felt pained by his choice, but he felt he had no other way since Naj refused to go far enough. Hungary and Naj's regime were doomed, Kadar suspected, and it must have been shocking after all the bare-faced lies to hear Andropov speak the naked truth at last. Naj's game is up and he is done for, Andropov flatly said adding that the Soviets were on the verge of invading Hungary with overwhelming force and nothing could stop them. Kadar had no choice, the Soviet ambassador said. If he refused to become their puppet, he would be arrested with Naj and face the same consequences. At that moment, Janusz Kadar became Judas Kadar to generations of Hungarians since, but some section of Kadar may have believed that by travelling to Moscow, he could mollify the Soviet treatment of his homeland or of his political peers. If some section of him felt this way on the evening of the 1st of November, then he was soon to be separated from it. Just before midnight on the 1st of November, Kadar flew to Moscow with his Hungarian peers. Moscow had their quizzling, and Naj would never even know what hit him. That evening at 8pm, Naj was busy with a task of his own, and a far more noble one at that. It was here, amidst an ocean of lies, that Naj determined to deliver some hard truths to the Hungarian people and to the rest of the world that may have been listening at the same time. Perhaps he hoped that this speech, wherein he finally announced Hungary's withdrawal from the Warsaw Pact, would rouse international feeling against the Soviets and protect Hungary from attack. With a heavy heart, no illusions about the outcome and a crippling sense of personal responsibility, Naj addressed the people at 8pm on the 1st of November, 1956. People of Hungary, the government, imbued with profound responsibility towards the Hungarian people and its history, and giving expression to the undivided will of the Hungarian millions, declares the neutrality of the Hungarian People's Republic. The Hungarian people, on the basis of independence and equality, and in accordance with the spirit of the UN Charter, wish to live in true friendship with her neighbours, the Soviet Union and all the peoples of the world. The Hungarian people desire the consolidation and further development of the achievements of their national revolution, without joining any power blocks. The revolutionary struggle fought by the Hungarian heroes of the past and present has at last carried the cause of freedom and independence to victory. The heroic struggle has made it possible to implement, in our people's international relations, its fundamental national interest, neutrality. We appeal to our neighbours, countries near and far, to respect the unilateral decision of our people. Today our people are as united in this decision as perhaps never before in their history. It is almost a sickening fact that the message which followed this live recording was a pre-taped one performed by none other than Janusz Kadar. That morning he had recorded a strongly worded speech wherein he condemned the morals of the old Rakoshi regime and Kadar added that he was proud to serve in the Naj coalition government with other democratic parties, arguing that this government, and he as its servant, would defend the honour and independence of our country against anyone. By the time the speech was broadcast, 
Kadar was grasping all too greedily at the top prize to remember the words he had said earlier in the day. The fix was in, and for the nearly 35-year stint he would serve as Hungary's communist leader, Kadar was to betray not only the legacy of his friend, but also his own principles, out of a poisonous cocktail of ambition and fear. Judas Kadar was finally born. As far as villains went, perhaps none were as calculating and ridiculous as Yuri Andropov, who maintained to the very end that he was on the side of the Hungarians, and kept up a public face of support and interest in Hungarian concerns. In reality, as he had demonstrated to Kadar, Andropov was a key element of the scheme to hand Hungary over to Russia once more. Naj, utterly hesitant to confirm the worst, had done all he believed possible. Now it remained imperative that the Hungarian forces under his command refrain from provoking the Soviet invasion, which seemed poised to strike. Pal Melitor, his Minister of Defence, had been informed that high-level talks were due to take place between the government and the Soviets in the latter's embassy on the 3rd of November. During this meeting, Naj anticipated that he would probably be arrested, yet this may also have been a tactic to wrest concessions out of him. While the Soviet forces were positioned to act out Operation Whirlwind by lunchtime on the 2nd of November, Naj couldn't know with certainty that the invasion and destruction of Budapest, if it proved necessary, was on the Soviet agenda. Perhaps these forces were being positioned to apply pressure in negotiations? The more he thought of it and of Andropov's behaviour, the more Naj found himself vacillating between different versions of the truth. On the 2nd and 3rd of November, there was no panic in Budapest. Everything seemed to continue as normal in the still-gutted capital. In light of this, we may ask why Naj didn't do something. Why did he fiddle while Hungary seemed about to burn? In fact, Naj knew well that there was nothing he could do. Even if the people of Hungary rose up, they would eventually be crushed. The country's future depended on what could be done at the negotiating table, and with this in mind, Naj prepared to meet with Soviet representatives, which had been changed to the Hungarian parliament as an apparent gesture to Naj. For the whole of Saturday the 3rd of November, Naj and his peers negotiated with the Soviets. They left parliament building's anti-room before 5pm in relatively high spirits. The Soviets, to Naj's surprise, had been quite accommodating and calm, giving out only the expected demands. Hungary must stop denying Moscow food and fuel as per previous trade deals, and the Russian soldiers would leave by gradual controlled departures, and the Hungarian people must cheer them as they leave for appearance purposes. Talk was reserved mostly for the subject of the Soviet exit. Having arrived in such force, these columns of the Red Army now seemed willing to negotiate the circumstances of their return to Russia. The Hungarian delegation should return later that evening at 10pm, the Soviets said, but in the alternative location of Tukol, a Soviet military base just outside of the city. Palmelider would lead the Hungarian delegation there, as Naj stayed home to conduct his own duties. Since the talks had all revolved around the military aspects of the situation anyway, Naj believed that Melider was in a better position to talk. So it was that the three most important men in Hungary's armed forces, in addition to Melider, went, in good but nervous faith, to talk with the Soviets far from safe pasture. Melider said farewell to Naj just after 8pm on Saturday the 3rd of November, 1956. The next time he saw his Prime Minister, it would be under very different circumstances. 
I could go on forever, history friends, but I better leave this episode there for now. Please join us next time as we do conclude this incredible story at long last. I hope you'll join me for episode 1.14, but until then, my name is Zach and you've been listening to 1956. Thanks for listening, and I'll be seeing you all soon.